Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Hello there. In this episode, we chat with Jordan Bonds, who's the co-founder and CEO of Tally Lab. We go deep into tracking personal data and corporate data and data protection and regulation and legislation. It's just so awesome. Great discussion. Uh, ran a little bit long. Sorry about that. But I believe you'll find it to be a, a really great conversation. Jordan has like a just tremendous command of this space in terms of uh, what's happening in the world and kind of the current status of things. So uh, I really enjoyed that conversation in the back half of, uh, of the episode. Uh, and Tally Lab is uh, uh, is just a really great solution. So uh, after you listen to this, go check out Tally Lab online. Find Jordan. Thank her for being on the podcast. If you like this episode, send it to somebody in your network and tell them to give it a listen. That's the best way to help us grow the show. And thank you so much for taking the time to listen. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. Welcome to the podcast. Today we have Jordan Bonds, who's the co-founder and CEO of Tally Lab. Jordan, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Why don't we start with a quick pitch for Tally Lab? Sure. So uh, in extreme brief, Tally Lab is an everything tracker for consumers, and it's an anything tracker maker for businesses. All right, let, let's get this slightly longer pitch for Tally Lab. <laughs> okay. Um, so basically, Tally Lab is a web-based application where users can set up trackers to track anything that happens as a moment in time. So you can set up a tracker to say, I ate an avocado. And then every time you eat an avocado, you just press a big button that says avocado, and it records that you ate it and when you ate it. Now, that can get extremely complex pretty quickly, and um, we try to allow for that, but we also try to keep the UI pretty simple so users can get started quickly. And you know, on the business side, that means basically we can set up an application that looks like that only from the business perspective, they get to track whatever they want. And usually there's a bit of custom UI work involved with that. Got it. And then what just flavors of what you've seen businesses tracking or the types of things that businesses track? Yeah, it really ranges pretty widely. So um, most recently, the project we're launching this month um, is a remote education log. So a couple of organizations in Massachusetts where we're located came to us and asked us to collaborate with them on um, building a piece of software so that their constituents, parents newly at home with their kids, trying to keep their kids learning while schools were closed during the pandemic, uh, a way for them, for them to keep track of the educational activities of their kids. So in this case, these are families with kids with disabilities who tend to have agreements with the state um, about how their education plan 
you know, will proceed and they need to be able to go back to the administration of the schools and say, here's what happened while school was closed. Here's what I think needs to happen. And having some kind of log, a very easy, very lightweight way for them in the moment to say, Hey, you know, the kids spent 30, 30, 30 hours, 30 minutes on math here, or did this activity here and here's who was involved just a very sort of simple way for them to keep track of that so that later when they're having those conversations um, with the school, they can report accurately what happened. So that's one example. Another example is an organization that came to us. Um, they were doing work with undocumented immigrants and they wanted a way to keep kind of lightweight track of who they'd talk to, some, some aspects of those conversations without um, endangering the identities of um, those constituents because, you know, they could, land in legal trouble. So uh, it really, it, and then, you know, we've been in conversations with a gaming company in Scotland to provide them basically a, an analytics engine for their games. Um, their games typically are directed at children. And so they wanted a way to gather stats, usage stats, in-game usage stats uh, about kids without really collecting any identifiable information about them. Uh, and then, you know, port that into a, a really easy to look at analytics dashboard so it really, it really can be anything. And since we're so early still, um, we're trying to just sort of explore uh, as many industries that we could be useful in as possible. And, you know, the, the idea is that one of them will start to become the obvious path over time. But, you know, if it stays diverse like this, I'm also happy with that. I, you know, it's, I have a a wide range of interests myself. And it's great to be in a position to have something useful to provide to lots of different kinds of companies. That's awesome. So hit us with some quick status of the business or stats for the business, anything you're open and willing to share. For So most of our listeners are entrepreneurs uh, or thinking about starting a company. So just to help them get an idea of where you're at with Tally Lab and how big the team is and, and any other kind of vanity metrics you're willing to share? Sure. So we formally incorporated at the very end of 2015, but didn't really start working full-time on the project until 2017. Uh, we launched a, an open beta of the consumer app, so the anything tracker that anyone can use. We launched that in, the, in August of 2018, I think. And at this point, we have about 500 users who are, you know, range in their in their activities inside of the how often how often they open the app, but you know it's five hundred all told for the consumer version, and then um, that's you know we have an in app crowdfunding module, so if if people using the app are excited about what we're doing, they can kick us a few bucks, but otherwise the app is free, and we do have about ten users who are contributing to that, so not a huge percentage, but it's an interesting metric nonetheless. Um, and then on the business side, this is really still very new. We haven't, you know, we, we've, we're just launching our first project publicly this month. And then, you know, we're having a lot of great conversations with other potential customers, but it's been very slow going and made even slower by the pandemic. So that's a relatively <laughs> new, <laughs> yeah. relatively new aspect of our business. Uh, you, you and everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it has become part of my standard line of questioning to ask uh, what impact COVID has had. If anything, it, it is kind of interesting. Sometimes it's a super positive effect, depending on what the technology does. Right. Um, what What have you guys seen? Yeah. So um, it's interesting. 
this this project that's launching this month is 100% because of the pandemic. And so that's really exciting to us. It's kind of a mixed, you know, it's, it's a strange situation to be in, right? That our business right. is actually doing better because of something that is causing so much angst otherwise. But, um, you know, so that it's had a positive effect in that regard. Um, but I would say, I don't know, I would really characterize it as mixed because our sales leads otherwise have almost entirely dried up. So we went from having, you know, 10 or 20 open conversations going that were really moving along at a great clip to just like, now there's two or three conversations going. And yes, this one that we're launching this month happens to have gone through. Yay. <laughs> but, uh, but otherwise it feels, it feels like there's a real, there's just a sort of silence that has fallen over the, over the industry, over, over the sales pipeline. It's really hard to get people on the phone uh, looking to buy new stuff because everyone's just, I think, feeling really cautious, which is totally understandable. So, yeah. you know, we do have this project we get to tout now, but I, and, which is a result of the pandemic, but I would say that at best uh, the effect on our business has been mixed. I mean, you know, from the consumer app angle, it hasn't changed dramatically. It's not like we saw a spike in usage or a drop off in usage. It's been pretty consistent. When you're prospecting, just going back to that kind of diminished sales volume, when you're prospecting a business, who is that kind of perfect customer that you're you're trying to get a hold of? Um, the perfect customer for us is a a a new business or a small business, you know, where they don't have a ton of resources for custom applications. But they need, they have, they see the need and the value of gathering some data, right? And where also privacy, end user privacy is important. Those are kind of the key ingredients. The larger, we find larger enterprise customers are usually looking at, you know, you know, hiring an actual application development firm to do something super custom uh, and might not want to come to us for that. And, you know, for folks that, for whom privacy is not important or privacy and security of end user data isn't important. What we're doing is technologically fairly niche. So it might not be appealing to them for that reason. Um, so that's kind of broadly the, you know, business persona, but that obviously is very abstract. And so yes. on, on the, <laughs> on the ground, what we've found to be the case is um, an interesting angle we've tried to go toward with sales are, um, labs like scientific labs conducting clinical trials because we can we can create something custom for them to send home with their patients who can do some gathering of data when they're not in the lab and that's very yeah. appealing but those labs are often entirely if not primarily um, government funded and we have to hit them at exactly the right moment in their funding cycle to get written into their grant applications and and when they're making those technology decisions and we've found that to be really challenging. So there's these other, you know, nuances to who who we consider customers, who end up being customers, right? Like there's the ideal customer, but then we as we pursue certain groups, we find that there's like a hitch here and there that we didn't anticipate. We have actually found it a lot easier to move forward with these small teams. In this case, it was two nonprofits that we're working with for the project that's launching this month, but really if it's a small team, or a company that's very young, right? So they haven't made, they haven't baked in a lot of their vendor relationships yet. They haven't made a lot of these decisions. If we can get in there, it tends to work better, both from that sort of like 
you know, hard angle of just like, have they made these decisions yet? And also from like a cultural fit, they're in a nimble place. We're in a nimble place. We can respond quickly and kind of creatively. And it just seems to be, those conversations seem to be better. Got it. That, that totally makes sense. Why Tally Lab? Why did you start the company? I in 2015 was uh, at the time the director of UX at a company that uh, in those days we would have called a big data company. <laughs> we had a we had we were working with a large data set and we were developing machine learning algorithms to sort of um, try to find value in that data set. And that was the first time I had really worked in a context like that. And definitely as a UX person, it was a fascinating challenge, which was to communicate lots of data to users and our our customers at that company were very low tech folks so i had to i had to communicate about large data sets and um, analytics on that data in a way that non-technical folks could understand which was a huge challenge i'm not sure we knocked out of out of the park necessarily but the experience of doing that really got me thinking about the role of data in in people's lives and how how useful it is for decision making and how and how not democratize that process is right most of us are not data scientists i am not a data scientist <laughs> but i was getting a firsthand glimpse at the value of um of data and data analysis in a way that you know i didn't feel like other people were getting and it seemed like a shame to me like we should be able you know we were all walking around with computers in our pockets all day every day like your phone is a more powerful computer than existed on the face of the planet a few decades ago, right? And yep. you just have it in your pocket. No big deal. Like, like it's not a miracle science. <laughs> and what well, what do we use them for? You know, we use them for playing games and we use them for, you know, staying in touch with people, which is great. Uh, uh, no, no diss on those uses for sure. However, there's a lot more we could be doing with them. And, you know, that, that experience at that startup and just my experience as a curious person in the world led me to just Think, start to conceive of a platform where individuals could explore data science for the mysteries in their own lives, right? Like maybe you think you have a food allergy and you know that gathering a little data about it would help you figure out what it was. But, you know, your doctor is like, well, keep a journal and a notebook. Well, that's really annoying when you're out at a restaurant with your friends to pull out your your food allergy notebook and say, here's what I ate and how much it's just, it just right. seemed ridiculous to me that there wasn't an easier way to do that on your phone, this computer you're carrying around. Right. So, however, <laughs> when I first had this idea, I assumed it existed somewhere. You know, I don't, I, I don't usually think of myself as a person who's got ideas that no one else has ever had. And, and that is true of Tally Lab as well. Other folks have been working on this problem for years. But um, when I went to the app store to look for something like this, what I found was that there were plenty of apps for gathering data and analyzing it, but they were always very narrowly focused on a, on a very specific use case, which is smart in a lot of ways. It's smart from a funding perspective. You know, it's way easier to go after that, that narrow use case and broaden it than to start with a broad mandate. It's harder to communicate to users about that. I understand. But in my case, I was really curious about tracking a bunch of different things, not just food, not just fitness, not just this or that, to see if there were correlations across categories. And there just was nothing in the app store that looked like that. Um, so I thought to myself, you know, I'll just, I can, there's an, I can make a UI for this, you know, and actually when I first had this idea, I was like, I'll just make a 
Google Sheet and use that. But if you've ever tried to update a spreadsheet on your phone when you're out in the world doing other things, it's, it's extremely the worst. <laughs> yeah, it really is the worst. So my first, the first sort of prototype of Tally Lab was actually just an in a better user interface for that use case, adding a data point to a spreadsheet, you know, from your phone. And it actually hooked up to Google Sheets. It didn't even store data on its own. Um, and then I was, you know, talking about the guy who ended up being my co-founder about this idea. And he was like, that's a good idea. We should, we should really build that out into something. And so we started, you know, making what was then a pretty standard, you know, mobile app with a Firebase database on the back end, no big deal. But once we started talking to folks about what they might use it for, we realized that privacy needed to be baked in from the outset. And you can definitely, you know, get Firebase to behave, you know, out of the box database software to behave in a privacy first way, but it, it takes a lot of effort. And we kind of found there were other emerging technologies that made the, the end user privacy a slam dunk out of the gate with, with very little effort, but it sent us down a completely different path technologically. And I can talk more about that later, but basically it, you know, we ended up rewriting the app, you know, four times before we, <laughs> before we ended up with what we have now. Um, so that privacy element came in once we started talking to people about what they might use it for. I hadn't been thinking about it at the outset, but then it really became a fundamental part of our thinking as we realized that, you know, if you're collecting data about your personal life and and you're, it's wide ranging data, that data set could really be dangerous, right? In the wrong hands. And so right. we, we decided to bake privacy in from the start. So that's kind of, that's where the idea came from and then how it kind of evolved early on. So you've already touched on this a little bit, just in kind of the conversation around why and, and how you got here. But I'd be interested in, in your thoughts when you step back and look at the market right now, today, when you think of competitors for Tally Lab, who or what comes to mind? Right. So uh, on the consumer end, there are a couple of apps out there like what we're doing. They are competitors, but they, they have different sort of uh, different focus. There's an app called exist.io where their, their focus is way more on bringing external, external data from other APIs into a single space. And so they haven't done the custom data entry stuff. We kind of were coming at that from different directions. We do intend to hook up external data sets over time, but we started with the custom input first. So that's a kind of differentiator there. And then there's another app called Nomi out there, which I, you know, both of these, I only discovered way after the fact when I first was looking, I probably, I probably would not have ended up, what's that? That's always the way that it works. I know, right? I would, I probably wouldn't have built TallyLab if I'd found them, but I wasn't searching for the right things initially, right? I had to walk pretty far down this path before I started to realize what I should be looking for, which is interesting. But, um, so Nomi is a, is an app that grew it's a it's a more of a custom data input app, but it grew out of specifically mood tracking. So it's very focused on mood tracking, and then you can add on these other categories if you want, which is again a slightly different bent. And doing this work for the amount of time I have in this sort of startup space makes me realize there's a lot of room in the market for a lot of different a lot of different versions, a lot of different takes on the same solution, right? So when I first discovered these. Other apps, I kind of had a panic attack about it. And then over time, I'm like, you know what? There's room for everybody here. We'll, may the best app win. Let's see what happens. But on the business side, really our biggest competitors are, you know, Google Sheets, Airtable, 
apps like that, like general purpose data entry and analysis apps. Um, Typeform, actually, you know, uh, SurveyMonkey, places where you can gather data. But none of these, as you've been listening to me list them, have have privacy built in in the way that we do. Um, they are all cloud-based, cloud-hosted solutions. And those are great. They work for a lot of a lot of good contexts, right? But we're kind of going at this in a fundamentally different from a from a fundamentally different angle, which is that your data is yours first. It lives on your devices first, and it we to the extent that you back it up in a way where it's you know in case something catastrophic happens to your phone or your computer or whatever, you can still get it. It's it's merely as a backup. It is not the primary home for that data. Whereas with cloud with cloud hosted solutions, the, the cloud is the primary home. And you know, to the extent that that those homes, servers in the cloud are hackable, which we've seen, they are very hackable, it really puts your data at risk. So we're kind of coming at that from a different perspective. Um, but it does limit our uh, utility in the near term. I think we could go head to head with those apps you know, in the long run. But um, at the start, we have to kind of find the niches where this matters. Because for most people, Google Sheets is going to be fine. You know, that's not, it's, it's, it gets the job done. They need to dump some data into a, into a grid and do some lightweight analysis. It's fine. And people are used to using that, right? But um, if you are in a context where end user privacy really matters, where connectivity is intermittent, you're collaborating with people in a lot of different contexts. We are a great alternative. Do you, okay, so it's complicated. There's there's probably a couple of ways to ask this question. So I'm going to ask them both. And this is a choose your own adventure. <laughs> okay. So question number one is, you know, where do you see the business going over the next kind of, you know, choose, pick your own timeline, three, five, 10 years in terms of commercial growth. And and what do you think the real opportunity is here? Particularly since some of those commercial competitors that you listed are just massive. Yes. <laughs> and then the second question, which I'm not sure if it's more important, less important, but certainly related is, do you, is there a conflict between the consumer kind of side of the business and the more B2B side of the business in terms of time, attention, focus? Do they, will they always need the same set of features or do you see that drifting over time? I, I'd love, I don't know which one of those makes the most sense to start with. I, I will start with the latter and it will lead us to the former. So for now, they overlap significantly, but yes, we do think there will be drift over time. And the reason we did it this way actually is that we really look at Consumer Tally Lab, um, you know, the initial app that we launched for individuals to use as a kind of, as, as a single instance of, you know, multiple Tally Labs, right? So this remote education log that we're launching this month is another Tally Lab. Um, the consumer version, Got the it. reason we started with that was that we really wanted, we really wanted to make the case that peer-to-peer decentralized applications with sort of novel tech at, at its heart can be usable by normal people. I think one of the main issues that this kind of novel tech has suffered from is that it's just the, the people are used to putting a username and a password and their email address into a piece of software, web-based software, signing in, their data is there, 
they don't have, they don't think too hard about what that might mean, storing their identity with their data, et cetera. Right. And, and yes, people increasingly realize that, uh, that's, that's a, that presents a vulnerability, but it's still not at a place where, you know, typical, a typical person on the street really cares that much, right? About their data privacy. They know they should care, sort of like climate change. You know, you should care, but (laughs) there's not really a lot you can do personally. So you just kind of forget about it (laughs) until something comes up, right? Which I I, I try to be very... Yeah, yeah, I try to be very sympathetic to that. I don't think people are wrong to approach the issue that way. But we really wanted to make the argument that you can build software for a general audience that is using a novel kind of privacy approach and have it still be usable and have it be approachable and have the UI be friendly. And so we wanted to start with that because it was going to be the basis of the UIs we built for businesses over time anyway. So Consumer Tally Lab is basically one version of this software that we built first, but it's, you know, the idea over time is to actually generalize our experience building these instances into a platform where anyone, you know, a business or an individual who needs to collect some data by themselves or in concert with others can come to Tally Lab and just, you know, fill in what they want to what they want to gather data about and basically generate an app. It's like a an app generation platform that is a data tracker that they can then distribute to whomever they want to collaborate on collecting data with. That's kind of the goal, but but really we have that goal for several reasons. One is that we think more data is better for making decisions almost always, but that that data needs to be protected. You know, we our sort of motto is collect more data, protect more data. We don't think you should have to de- decide between those two things. We think they can go together. And we want more people to be doing that. But on a kind of sneakier, you know, under the covers layer, we also want more applications to be built as peer-to-peer decentralized applications. We think that having all of the internet's infrastructure consolidated amongst a handful of companies in a bunch of uh, server farms is sort of fundamentally at odds with what the web was built to be, right? A decentralized place where data, data flows freely and everyone can contribute equally to that, that data store over time. And no single company controls everyone's data or the place where it resides. And so this is sort of our little Johnny Appleseed way of spreading applications that are built in a fundamentally different way, spreading it to more people and more businesses. So that is kind of where we see this going, is that it's a, it's a platform for generating apps, for generating apps that collect data. And we want that to be increasingly self-serve. So already in building two versions of this, the consumer version, and then this remote education log, we have learned so much about how to build a data tracker, a privacy first data tracker. And we are, we are folding those lessons into a platform design so that later you could come along and say, well, here, I want to, you know what, I want to survey, I want everyone in my neighborhood to be able to collect data about potholes and, you know, how many rafts I'm seeing and whatever else is going on in your neighborhood. Right. And I want to just basically decide what's important and set those up, set those trackers up and then say to everyone in my neighborhood here, install this app. Let's all contribute to this data store together. And then we have, you know, a living data store 
the data lives with us, our communicate, our, our commu- community, and we decide what happens with it. One of the examples I give of like why this would be useful is a is a community like Flint, Michigan, where if they had had a tool like this and could have been tracking both water quality, right, on its own, maybe via some kind of like device that you hook up to your sink, which apparently is is has happened over the years, but also epidemiological outcomes. So like who's getting sick and what are their symptoms? How powerful a data set would that be, especially if it was kept in their hands, the community's hands? This isn't this doesn't live with some distant megacorp in the cloud. It lives with them and it lives on their devices. That's the kind of scenario we see um, being sort of the future of this. All right, Jordan, do you have any swag for Tally Lab that uh, you have for the team or for investors or customers or anything like that? Yes, we have die cut stickers and magnets and people really like them. I know it sounds simple and not very fancy, but, you know, people love a magnet. It's useful. Keeps you keeps you in your customer's mind on their fridge at all times. So we really I like enjoy that. that. How do you get them into the hands of customers? So I have mailed them before when someone gives us uh, some good feedback on the on the app and how they're using it. I always send them oh, a care like package uh, to thank them for that. But also, you know, if we're tabling at an event. We'll just have a stack of them sitting there. Um, those are usually the two ways, just thanking customers with them in a little care package or else at a conference. I I didn't, I, I should ask this in the podcast live, but now you're gonna have to answer it now. What what types of events would you go to for Tally Lab from a, from a promotional perspective? Um, you know, uh, events around like data science. Um, that's another one of our kind of sneaky goals. Is to Super just, exciting yeah. events like, like data science, okay. Exactly, it's very exciting. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking now it's been so long since uh, we've been in this pandemic time since I've been to them. Right. But, you know, like, you know, I speak at tech conferences, especially around how to make privacy usable. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, we talked about that. Yeah. yeah. So like She Geeks Out events. I, the last one that I did at the very end of February <laughs> was a She Geeks Out event. And so I'll bring I'll bring those kinds of items with me. I'm trying to think of what else, you know, pitch events are less fun. <laughs> I like them, but they're not as public facing, right? Uh, Agreed. Um, Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, if you need stickers or magnets for your startup, you can find those at fuelmerchandise.com. And if you mention startup competitors, you can get a discount on your first order. That is good to know. So I I know when you talked about the origin story, it didn't start with that kind of focus on data. And you, you said it, data privacy is what I should say. Did have a focus on data didn't have to focus on data privacy and you said it was you know four ish rewrites later when you got there what yep i mean it sound I, certainly the way you talk it sounds like a much more mission driven now around that data privacy what what was the impetus for that there were two threads that kind of came together one <laughs> one was just the kind of data people wanted to track and we felt like it was really important for users to trust us with their data, that they understand that we couldn't see it, right? Like that really the ultimate trust is when you know I can't see your your data in the first place, right? Right. Um, So we wanted, we we realized over time that given what people wanted to be tracking, we shouldn't know what it was. It, It should be their data, not ours. And we shouldn't, we don't need to know what it is, right? So that was like kind of the ultimate, we were like, what is, 
what is ultimate trust here? And that's what it is, is ignorance is kind of ultimate trust, right? So that was one thread, given what, what we heard users wanting to track. And then on the other side, uh, if you think back to 2015, 2016, this is when the Cambridge Analytica scandal was was breaking and data end user privacy and basically the, the kind of landscape of how user data, end user data is being aggregated without user opt-in, you know? So like what, if you walk around the world with your location services turned on on your phone, your service provider knows a lot about you, where you've been, the apps you've been using, the data packets you're sending back and forth, wherever you are, and real deep, detailed, and specific to you profiles can be generated about you. Uh, by people who never have to get your opt-in for that. And you never get to see what, what that looks like even, right? right. And so the, it was, that was just increasingly concerning. And to be, to be perfectly honest, the, the startup I was working at at the time was contributing to that. It had began, had begun as a big data platform with a certain kind of like social mission bent. And over time, due to influences that I don't have to get into at this moment, it had really turned into a data surveillance operation. That was the value, the perceived value of what we were doing was that we could generate these profiles of people from multiple data sources and they never knew it. And I just grew increasingly uncomfortable with that because I knew that if people, if end users did know what we were doing, they would not be cool with it, right? It's, right. It was all built out of public data. So data that users had themselves put onto the internet. But I knew they didn't know we were aggregating it, right? And I think that's a key aspect of this that people don't think about. They think of they think of a single application that they're using and their relationship with that company, right? So maybe you're playing a game. Maybe you're playing, I don't know, what's a popular game? Farmville or something, right? And you're thinking to yourself... <laughs> In 2015, maybe. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, actually, what I was thinking of was that one that's really popular right now. What is it? Where you're like on an island or something. It's similar. Oh, I'm not. Th- I'm not the one to ask. Anyway, me, clearly notes. neither yeah. am I. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're playing a game, and you think your data in that game is just is just a is just a matter between you and the company that made that game, right? But what you're not aware of is that the the phone you're on, whoever made that phone, has access to that data. Whatever you know, ad platform the game is using to make it free for you. Anyone involved in that ad advertising ecosystem has access to your data, your service provider. So you might you might have an Apple phone, and so you're sending your data to iCloud. Apple's a bad example because privacy is pretty important to them. But let's say it's an Android phone. You're part of Google's ecosystem, right? But maybe Motorola sold you your phone. And then maybe you're buying uh, your, your mobile service from, say, Sprint or something. Is Sprint even a company anymore? AT&T, whoever. So all of these actors have access to that that set of data and they know it's coming specifically from you, right? And the value for them, part of the value for them in selling you a device and selling you software to begin with is that data that you're generating. And they like to talk about it like it's anonymized and they only use it for trends. But I know from firsthand experience that that isn't true. There is actually a profile of you as an individual and all of the things you're buying and looking at places that you're going. And that is only as safe as the intentions of the people who hold that data for you, right? And we just, I, as a company, we feel like you shouldn't have to trust us with that, actually. Because frankly, 
I might be, I might have your best interest at heart right now, but, but I could wake up tomorrow and change my mind, or I could get ousted as the CEO of this company and someone could get installed by my board who decides I want to leverage this data for my own purposes. It's, it's just, it's, it's very fragile, this ecosystem. And it relies, I think, too much on the goodwill of individual actors who may not understand what your, you know, your context is or what's best for you. So why not just not participate in that? Why not say, hey, I want you, consumer or business with end, vulnerable end users, I want your data to belong to you. And I don't think it should have, I don't think I should have any ability to leverage it for any reason. And if it's valuable to you to have a place to collect that data and analyze it, then you can just pay me for that. You don't have to also pay with your actual identity or your, you know, your actual sort of like the, the breadcrumb trail of data that you're creating as you move through the world. You don't have to pay me with that because I don't, I shouldn't be trusted with that. I love it. You know, one, I hate this conversation. You're freaking me out. I don't like that. (laughs) And it's all stuff I know. I just don't like hearing it out loud. Neither do I. (laughs) Uh, And two, I, I, you know, I, I do love the kind of the passionate position that you've taken. It's great. How, how much of that do you think will drive sales going forward? Like it, it, or, or maybe talk to me a little bit about customer acquisition strategy, because I, I hear a lot of what you're saying. And, and I think, oh man, if Jordan's talking at conferences, that's going to drive people wanting to partner with her to leverage that data platform. If she's writing articles, that's going to get consumers to pay attention. You know, like how, how much of that is part of your strategy for customer acquisition? Oh, it, it's a big part of it. So, you know, conversations like this are great. You know, I have been, you know, out there writing articles in collaboration with others and by myself uh, on our blog and on our Medium blog. Um, had one published, I, I wrote something in in partnership with a um, actually a fitness app. I met a woman, I don't know how I met her actually. She's, her company's in Seattle, but there, it's basically a live a live platform for um, collaborating with your personal trainer when you're not at home, which has become really fantastic for her during lockdown. Yeah. Actually, yeah. another another example of a of a application that's doing way better, or a business that's doing way better in this context than they were before. But um, she had not yet implemented a sort of a fitness stats tracking component in the app even though her users were asking for that because they were also asking to have their data kept private and she just couldn't find a data partner who would keep users' data private in in any way that she felt comfortable with. And so that's kind of how we found each other. And we decided to write an article talking specifically, you know, basically about what what I just laid out for you about end user privacy and the sort of perils of it, but specific to fitness apps and like, what do people know about you and how, how trustworthy you know, our applications with that data. So yeah, definitely content, basically content marketing, right? Putting ourselves out there. I think as far as acquisition goes, I think what's been a challenge for us is that (laughs) we're at this moment. I mean, it's really tough. I don't know. There's a lot of analogies I can make, but it's basically like we're asking companies to leave value on the table. We're saying to them, we don't think you should leverage your end users data for things that are sort of orthogonal to why they're coming to you in the first place, right? So in the case of a fitness app, they're coming to you because you, you know, they want to get in shape and they want to know 
how well they're doing and you know what what kind of streak they're on, et cetera. But it's going to be very tempting for you as a company to not also aggregate that data and sell it to folks who might find it useful for other reasons. And that's because end users have gotten really used to software being free. And I don't, I don't know how to end run that really. Like people don't like paying for software. Individuals don't like paying for software. And by software, I mean apps, anything. I think something you install on your laptop, but also an app you might install on your phone. And we're at a really, we're at a fundamental pivot point there right now, which is, I think in general, the population is coming to you know, general users of phones are starting to understand that free isn't really free. There's no such thing as a free lunch, right? So they're paying with their data, but people don't really care. Actually, they're kind of fine doing that only when something truly dangerous happens to them, when their data does fall into the wrong hands and gets misused, do they, do they become kind of like, you know, more activist about protecting that data and about paying for software that's not going to spy on them. And I don't want to, I don't want that to happen to more people at all, obviously, but I also don't think the landscape will change significantly until it does. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I think you may be on the front end of a curve. And, and I say that only because people smarter than me are saying that right now. Like if you look at any of the 2020, 2021 technology trends for, from like Accenture, Deloitte, you know, any of the big firms out there, trust, digital trust is like, yes. you know, one of the top five things that they talk about. And they, they, you know, they're obviously tying that back to to blockchain and, and how do you get yes. like right. distributed trust and transparency to mm-hmm. having trust in the the user experience at very much your point that the data that you're putting in there is, is going to be used in the ways that you you believe it's going to be used to to regulatory changes, whether that's GDPR or you know, California's regulations that go into effect later next month, right? Um, they already you, went into effect, actually. Um, are, are January first. They uh, might be. It might be phased. It might be. That yeah, they were like, I thought. I yeah. thought July was like the magic, um, huh. the magic month where it got painful. But oh, maybe, I think that's I, maybe. I think you're right. I think it went into effect pri- previously, but this was the sort of grace period, you know. But, yes. But P.S. I mean, the pandemic really complicates that, complicates those efforts. So. Early on in the pandemic, we we looked at the what was what was happening and and how testing how fragmented testing was, and there were a number of projects springing up to do symptom tracking, and we were like, "This is great! Like this is what we've been building for." And you know, I got on the phone with a number of different um, symptom tracking projects, people building these applications, and I was like, "Hey, we've been building this platform for exactly this kind of use case. Uh, let's partner." And all of them, the first thing they did when they had the idea for a symptom tracker was set it up on Firebase and just start using Google's tools or Amazon's tools. They, and privacy was the furthest thing from their mind. Right. Because speed was the number one thing, right? It was really hard to hear, but totally unsurprising to me at that point. Because it's the first thing to go. Like People just don't want to pay for it. They don't think it's worth... They don't want to pay for it in money or in time. And uh, I'm glad you brought up the, re- the regulatory landscape because that's really the only way this is probably going to change. It's just that these laws, like GDPR is great. CCPA, the California law, is, is modeled after GDPR, but it's a lot more watered down. And there's just, it puts a lot of onus 
on the end user to manage these relationships proactively. And I just don't think most people have the the sort of technical mindset or appetite to, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have this experience. It's, it's, it's not even that I have the technical mindset and appetite. And like, just even literally before I clicked record on this podcast, I was on a site. I, I wish I could remember which one, but like, a you know, the, the now mandatory cookie acceptance policy yes, exactly. pops up. Right. Yep. And it, and it, there's two buttons, there's accept and then there's options. Yep. And you click on options and it's like, it is absolutely a hundred percent architected to make it so complicated. Yep, exactly. You have no option but to click accept. Exactly. Because what are you going to do? Spend the next hour reading their Correct. terms? And I mean, like, right. please, it's just, it is just that, do you accept our terms and conditions to use this website by another name? Right. And it's right. the exact same workflow where they, you're right. They try to mystify you with complexity in order to encourage you down the path they want you to take. Right. And until the regula- until regulation changes such that the onus is really on the company, on the app maker, and that the, you know, the consequences for data breaches are severe enough, it's, it's, you know, otherwise it's just this arms race and it's being put off on the end user always. And I just don't think that's, I don't think that's right. I don't, I don't think it's an ethical move to force end users who are really living in a world where they need this software, right? Think about specifically ed tech, right? Like, what do you tell, what do you tell parents? Uh, your kid needs to be on this platform. So you have to accept these terms. And if I say, if you say no, as a parent, what is your kid going to do otherwise? Right? Like not participate in school. That doesn't seem so the, the idea that we have a choice is really to me just sort of, um, you know, it's like free will theater or something because, you know, as an, as an analog to like security theater, because you don't have a choice. If you want to participate in, right. In modern life as an individual, as a parent, as a, as a employee in many, many contexts with many identities, if you want to participate, you have to opt in. And that means you're basically like ceding all control to this stuff. And I just, I just, you know, it's the trend is in the right direction, as you point out. And I, you know, actually the sort of the, the, the GDPR being passed and then going into enforcement happened while I was at that previous startup. And it was part of, it was one of those ingredients. I looked at that law and I thought, this is correct. This is the right direction. This is what end users would want if you asked them. And so let's get on the right side of this. And I met so much internal resistance, like the the leadership at, at by that point when it was going into enforcement, the the startup had actually been acquired by a larger company, and so I was in these much bigger meetings with you know many more layers of bureaucracy above me. But um, you know, I was the I was the unlucky person at those meetings saying, "What happens if we actually get behind the spirit of this law?" And everyone else was like, no, we are going to comply with the letter and find as many loopholes as we possibly can. And it was really uh, dispiriting, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> but I really think, you know, the regulation is on the right path. We're heading in the right direction. It's just painfully slow. And my assumption is that sort of similar to what's going on with telemedicine right now, it's going to take some kind of extreme crisis for us to 
leapfrog into a, a new phase of, of valuing end user data in a way where we actually take that onus off of users and put it on the app makers and the software developers to do it right, you know, to think of their end users as collaborators, as people whose data deserves care. Um, I think it's going to take some kind of some kind of incident, which I just it's not I'm not saying that with any relish. I want to be clear. I do not want that to happen. I don't want people's data being abused, but I really don't see it's sort of like <laughs> my stepfather is fond of of this saying that something like people don't change because they see the light, they change because they feel the heat. And <laughs> I uh, I think I like that, that is frequently the case. And I think it's the case with data privacy. Unfortunately, I don't, I can't imagine in my head, the COVID sized event around data privacy that, that hasn't already happened that, that would, that would spark that. Well, okay. So what are you thinking of when you say that, what are you thinking of the events that have happened? So my, my, my partner, Michael Klorn turned me on to the Darknet Diaries Mm-hmm. Uh, like like a year ago, I don't mm-hmm. know if you've listened to that podcast. It is the most disturbing <laughs> podcast on I, the internet. I haven't listened to it, but I know of it. So maybe this oh, conversation will. <laughs> it's <laughs> so me. good. It's so good. Like I went back and listened to every single episode, which is uh, just entirely too much content of yeah. that type. That mm-hmm. um, you know just makes you want to go buy a tinfoil hat. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, but it, but it, but basically, like you know, like, you can see it in all of the breaches that are covered in in that podcast you see it in modern news today where you know our government basically says china can't sell these phones in the united states anymore because we know yep. <laughs> that that's what they're doing yeah and like i don't know i i just feel like it's so i feel like it's already in the conversation like everybody just assumes like you know like i get a credit card i i couldn't care less what website i go to nowadays and swipe my credit card because I just assume it's going to get stolen in, you do, in, within but a couple of months. Here's the problem. You, I'm so glad you brought up credit cards because this is the example I always give, which is that you assume it's going to get stolen, but you also know the credit card company is going to protect you, right? Yes. So yes. they've done a real, I feel like the credit card companies have done more to delay this reckoning. And I, I know why, and I know why it happened this way. And, and again, it's good that they're protecting you as an individual, Right. But what it means is that you as an individual never feel the pain of this kind of fraud of someone stealing your card and using it. And so you right. don't ever feel the need to agitate for anything different, right? Because you're being protected. And that's you, there's a steady drumbeat of data breach announcements, right? But when has it ever materially changed your life? Not. It has not. Not once. Yeah. Right. I'm sure you were part of the target breach. Let's say almost all of us were, right? Uh, de- yeah. Nothing happens sure. to you. Nothing happened to you. No one stole your identity. No, you didn't, you were not out a single penny because of that data breach. So again, this is exactly why the analogy to climate change is is so apt, is that you know this is bad, but in your day-to-day life, you're like, well, I need I just gotta keep on keeping on here. I don't know what to do about that. And yes, I hear that these data breaches are happening, and that's terrible, but it's not actually changing anything about my day-to-day life. And that's what I mean, that some kind of some kind of breach is, is going to have to happen where everybody's bank account gets wiped out. That would get your attention, right? Like that's that's not and cool. I, I don't want to again, I don't <laughs> I sound like some kind of like a like a 
comic book supervillain right now, right? I like and, it. <laughs> and I, I'm, I don't want this thing to happen, to be clear. But I also don't think, I think, A, it's a matter of time, uh, frankly, just to be honest. And I don't think major change will happen until that does happen. Until people are, are true, something truly scary happens that has an actual ramification. Like maybe someone hacks into the, let's say the social security database and nobody gets social security payments for a year. Like that would be bad, real bad, right? So it's that, it's that we've put all these safeguards in place. Uh, all these corporations have put safeguards in place, which is good, right? But it's it's just an arms race, and it isn't fundamentally dealing with the underlying problem, which is that in these hosted environments, in these consolidated uh, situations, your data isn't really safe. It's just as safe as whatever the last data breach lesson was, you know. And that's not very reassuring. <laughs> But it's not it's not reassuring, but it's not scary enough for anyone to do anything about it yet, right? So here we are. <laughs> All right. Uh, I w- when we opened this podcast uh, before we clicked record, I asked you how much time you have. We're way over, but okay. I'm I'm loving the conversation. <laughs> um, I I I probably have to let you go real quick. I have a, a couple more questions. What are you tracking right now with uh, Tally Lab? Personally? Oh. Um... So I actually use it primarily at the moment. And, you know, I should say, this is a good occasion to say that, you know, a lot of people react to the the concept of the app by saying, oh, that sounds like OCD madness to me. I don't want to track every detail of my life for the rest of my life. And my response is always that this is more meant to be a space where you do short time bounded little studies in your own life. Not that you want to track every single thing about your life for the rest of time. That said, uh, the study I'm most actively engaged in personally with Telelab right now is a is a is a time like management uh, study where I'm trying to figure out how am I spending my time and how could I be spending it better. So I'm I'm actually tracking when I you know every sort of Pomodoro half hour of work I do I I note in Telelab what I did with that time and I'm analyzing it to see can, nice. can I optimize better. Can can I? Can I ask what you're finding? You know, and this is interesting. So I, you know, my my thought in doing this was I just felt so unproductive. But as as, is, as I'm finding is often the case with folks tracking stuff in Telelab, it's its main benefit seems to be in reassuring people that they're actually better than they think that they're doing better with whatever they're tracking than they think they are. And this is this is no less true for me. I'm actually it's it's been really heartening. Cause I look at it and I'm like, you know what? I'm actually way more focused and productive than I thought. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the people I know who have been tracking their sleep, for instance, come back to me and say, you know what? I'm actually sleeping a lot better and longer than I thought I was. And I'm not as worried about it now. Uh, and so, you know, it's, you might end up with a sort of meta conclusion uh, that you aren't expecting, or I was really trying to get into the kind of nitty gritty of my productivity, but it turns out that, I, it's really going to be tinkering at the edges for me. It's not going to. Ha- I'm not going to have to overhaul because I'm actually doing better than I thought. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing. That's awesome. Yeah. What if I spied on you on a Friday night or a Saturday morning and got a peek into a personal interest or hobby that you were trying to learn right now and were passionate about? What would I discover? Ah, so 
One of my lifelong hobbies has been collage. I make collage art. It's a really great way of just unwinding and it gets me off the computer. I cut up actual physical magazines and use actual glue to glue them together. And it's just really meditative and nice. So that's, that's one thing. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of folks who work in technology, getting away from the, the interface, getting away from the computer um, yep. at regular intervals. I think it really, it helps me keep perspective on what I'm doing. I, I can get behind that for sure. Um, but the other thing is more pandemic specific, which is <laughs> every Friday night since lockdown. So since mid-March, I and a bunch of my friends have gotten together in a Slack channel and we hit play on a bad movie just any crappy movie every week somebody else gets to choose. And we just chat and sort of do like a mystery science you theater 3000 yes. kind of thing where we just make fun of the movie the whole time. And it's really cathartic and awesome. And I highly recommend doing something like that. When do you post the YouTube channel of those Friday night mystery science theater? Oh man, we haven't done it publicly. It's been a private thing, but it would be fun to do publicly. That's a really good idea, actually. If we could find a... I'm that... sure you'd be violating all sorts oh, exactly. of copyrights. It's a, always yeah. a copyright problem, right? So I was like, yeah. if we could find some movie that has no copyright protection, <laughs> maybe we could do that publicly. That is awesome. I yeah. love that answer. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. All right. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for the extra time. I really appreciate oh, it. Of course. Thank you. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about Tally Lab, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I am Jordan, J-O-R-D-Y-N, at tallylab.com. And definitely go check out tallylab.com. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.